After Marty and Susan's most recent Sunday visit, they began to discuss which churches they would like to visit again. But in the middle of their conversation, they realized that committing to a church based solely on its worship gathering left something to be desired. It's always a risk. What is? You know, making a commitment. I mean, we obviously don't want to be church shoppers. Well, obviously. So we, we don't want to go too long deciding on a place in which to worship regularly, but at the same time, there's only so much that we can see in the worship gathering. Right. I mean, the service might be great, but what if it is all a show? Do you mean what if the worship service is as far as they go as a church? Yeah, exactly. I mean, what if their church attendance is the extent of their commitment? Well, I mean, we can see some of the other things the churches do in the bulletin and in the announcements. Yeah. We can see that nearly all of them do other things. Yeah, true. Yeah. I'm not so concerned about their extra programs and activities and all that sort of thing as I am taking a risk on who they are as people. Hmm. You know, there's, there's no way that we can get to know a church simply by the worship service. I mean, we, we can see some things, but without interacting and seeing how you know how they are as a church community that that lives outside of sunday mornings we we really have no idea if you know if what well if they're jerks <laughs> well I, I don't know most of the churches do have classes and small groups and maybe we should visit some of them yeah i think we should all this worship service visitation is doing anything it's making it more clear that we ought to be looking more deeply at a church than simply judging its music and preaching. I mean, those things are important. Yeah, but I, I we know, should but... find out how seriously a church practices what it preaches. All right, good evening. We're not all a bunch of jerks, are we? I hope not. Hang on to the, the thoughts in the video there um, for just a few minutes. Just want to say a couple things. I appreciate Lexi coming up and sharing um, tonight. And I'm just really excited to see what God's doing in her life and also over at Radius International. Um, some of those grayed out speakers, um, some of them are my teachers. Some of them were my field leadership um, when, when our family was overseas and great folks. A great need for that kind of training and I'm glad that in some small way our church can be a part of that through sending Lexi and and I'm excited that God is leading her forward in that too. I'm also a member of the Missionary Canada Development Program um, so I if I can take a few minutes of your time take you a few minutes past seven tonight just to encourage us as a church body to do what we need to be doing for these um, these folks that are going through there's a lot of emphasis that we place on you know, Preston and Stephanie and others that are going through the Missionary Canada Development Program to be involved in the church, to get to know the people, to make sure that people know who you are. Um, and that can be really intimidating and it can be very overwhelming. We're a church that's large enough where there's a lot of people to try to get into their homes or to get them into our homes. And I think it'd be really good for us if we really took that seriously and took some of the pressure off of them and, and did our part to invite them in to get to know them and so that they're not feeling like they're always having to be stressed 
to get to know everybody. It's a good thing for them to know us all, but we don't want that to be a burden. So when you see people like Preston and Stephanie and, and whoever else is going to be going through the Missionary Canada Development Program, Lexi, as she's back for this next year, invite them over, take them out for ice cream, you know, pizza, you know, whatever it is, just get to know them. And then for us as a church body also, it's not just our job to make sure that there's funds in the budget for that check to be mailed out every three months. It's a lot more for us to do than that. We are, while they're here, really a part of their spiritual development. We need to be asking them questions, encouraging them on in their faith, so that when they go, they're ready to go. They've thought through the costs. They've They've understood the questions like, what is a church? Let's educate ourselves so we know what a church is so that when we are talking to these folks, when they're in our homes, when we're licking an ice cream cone together, we can ask them good questions and then they can, can respond back to us. And as we're interacting, we're both learning and growing in our faith. And then as we know them that way, we have so much more perspective to be able to pray for them as they're there. We're gonna know where they're really strong, where we can give thanks for that. We're also gonna know their areas of weakness so we can pray, you know, they struggle here. They're weak in their understanding here. God, grow them that way. So let's take our responsibility as a church very seriously. Let's put a lot of our time into these folks because we're not just a check-writing machine. We're the body of Christ. These are members of us going out to share the gospel. And I guess that would be my encouragement for us. Let's take this job every bit as seriously as they are. Because it's not just them. It's us together. And the effort is ours, not theirs. Does that make sense? All right. Well, thanks for letting me do that. All right. So if you want to try to remember back to the video, um, we are in the second to the last lesson in this gospel-shaped worship series. And the topic for this evening is developing a top or developing a culture of grace. Developing a culture of grace. And the passage that was given to me for that um, is Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. And it's a great passage for this topic. The problem is, is that I studied it and studied it and studied it. I realized, you know what, there's a foundation here that has to be understood before we can get to Romans chapter 15. So we're actually going to go back and we're going to start in Romans chapter 1 um, and go through chapter 4 and just hit the, hit the big points kind of like John did in, in the second sermon of this series. But before we do that, I just want to point out two resources that have been very helpful for me in understanding what a culture of grace is, understanding what the church is. The first is, what is the gospel? And I've pointed this out to everybody before. It's a great way to understand the gospel how to share it better. God has used that. I've been able to use what I've learned from this book to share my faith much more effectively with those around me. Um, the second book is The Gospel by Ray Ortland. It's exactly on what I'm talking about tonight. And he does a way better job than I'll ever do at explaining what a culture of grace looks like, what this church really is. And I actually have several copies with me tonight. And my two boys... Ben and Sam have several copies in their hands, and they'd love to be able to run up and down the aisles and give them to anybody who um, would like to have a copy. So if you want a copy of these books, if you'll commit to reading them, Jen and I would like to give them to you. So if you want it now, raise your hand if you're not comfortable with that. If you're a good Baptist. Okay, we have some right, right here. And a couple back there. 
So if you guys want to look for hands, if you're not comfortable raising your hands, please feel free to see us afterwards. Boys, look around. And if you don't, we don't have enough books, see me afterwards. I have more, okay? So with that, let's get started. Developing a culture of grace. A culture of grace. There's a couple words that we need to define, I think, before we can get into this. Um, forgive me, I'm going to stick close to my notes. I have a lot to say in a little bit of time. If I start ad-libbing, we're going to go over. So let's define culture first. One of the most helpful definitions that I've found is that culture is a word borrowed from sociology, meaning the public lifestyle that expresses a shared mindset and convictions that are held in common. Again, culture is the public lifestyle that expresses a shared mindset and convictions held in common. So culture is simply a group of people living out what they truly believe together. Now the second word that we really need to define is grace. A.W. Tozer defines grace this way. Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. Again, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. Okay, so we've got a definition of these two words at least. Let's try to put them together. So a culture of grace is the well thought out, convictional, corporate, and public lifestyle of those undeserving people upon whom God in his good pleasure has bestowed his benefits. A culture of grace is the teachings of God lived out practically by a local church. A culture of grace flows out of the gospel being proclaimed rightly and lived out together by those who believe. So before we can talk about this culture of grace, we need to look at the gospel that forms it. Before we can understand what a right living out of the gospel looks like, we have to understand the gospel itself. We have to see what God has done for us before we can rightly understand how to act in response to what he's done for us in his grace. A church can never have a culture of grace without being first and continually bathed in the message of grace. We saw this when, when I taught through Ephesians a while ago. Paul often uses this pattern in the letters that he writes, what God has done, how we respond. First, all God, and then how we respond to that in his power. He does that the same way in Romans. So we're going to look at the gospel, what he's done in chapters 1 through 4 right now. So if you will, please turn to Romans in your Bibles, Romans chapter 1. We'll get started. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, please do grab one in the seats in front of you. I meant to look at the page number that that was on, but I didn't, so I apologize. But just grab somebody next to you if you can't find it, and they'll help out. The chapters are the big numbers, and then the smaller numbers are the verses that correspond. So in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 16, Paul writes this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This gospel, this good news, is what God has tasked the apostle with proclaiming, and he is not ashamed to do so. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So this begs the question then, what is this gospel that Paul is so passionate about? What is it that has the power of God for salvation? What is this life-giving and transforming power found in this good news? There's four points that I found, or four ways, four bullet points, if you will, that really help me understand this gospel 
They're God, man, Christ in response. And um, they're just laid out really clearly in this book. Very helpful um, in sharing the gospel. So God, man, Christ response. That's where we're going to go, these four points. First one, God. Paul starts out in chapter one by showing the readers of his letter that it is God to whom they are accountable. Let's look at chapter one, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. He shows that since God is the creator of all, including the human race, we are accountable to him. We are accountable to him. God has the right to demand that we live in a certain way, the right to demand that we worship him and him alone. Greg Gilbert in that book says, it is our obligation as people created and owned by God to give him the honor and glory that is due to him, to live and speak and act and think in a way that recognizes and acknowledges his authority over us. We are made by him, owned by him, dependent on him, and therefore accountable to him. That's the first point that Paul labors to make as he explains the good news of Christianity. So that's the first point, God. Second point, man. Paul goes on to show that humanity, every single human in all of history, has rebelled against God and his plan for us as his creation, and that therefore that rebellion, that sin, is our fundamental problem. We see starting in verse 22 of chapter 1, that claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Think of this with me for a minute, will you? God has revealed his glory to us ever since the creation of the world. And instead of worshiping him, we have chosen to worship the creation. Whether that be worshiping an object formed by human hands, or in worshiping ourselves by following our own desires, or wants, or even by worshiping another human, or a human relationship. We have considered these things to be more fulfilling, more wonderful, more glorious and more worthy than God. This worshiping the created instead of the creator is the height of our rebellion and rejection of our creator. And it is the root and the essence of all of our sin. Again, Greg Gilbert summarizes it this way. By the middle of chapter three, Paul has indicted every single person in the world with rebellion against God. In verse nine, Paul writes, we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And his sobering conclusion is that when we stand before God the judge, every mouth will be silenced. No one will mount a defense. No, not one excuse will be offered. The whole world, Jew, Gentile, every last one of us will be held fully accountable to God. This is what the Bible teaches, that each and every, us, each and every one of us is without excuse before the wrath of God. So if you're like me at this point, you're saying, you know what, Paul, not quite getting why you're so excited to share this message of the gospel. This doesn't sound like good news. This is terrible news. Like, that I'm accountable to God for my rebellion against him, that's terrifying. But you know what, in order for good news to be good news, we have to first understand that there's a problem. 
There has to be a reason for good news to actually be good news. To say that, to have somebody say to me that they're going to save me doesn't mean much unless I know that I need to be saved. So we have to start there. That understanding of the gospel has to be there first. So now let's get to the good news, the power of salvation. Point three, Christ. Now let's look together at Romans chapter three, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is the good news. There is a way apart from the law, apart from me or you acting better or living a more righteous life. There's a way for sinful, rebellious human beings to be counted righteous before God. There is a way for us to be declared innocent instead of damned as guilty. There is a way for us to be justified instead of condemned. What is this way? How can this happen? In verse 24, we see clearly that we are justified by God's grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By the work accomplished through Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection, sinners can be saved from the condemnation that their sins deserve. That is good news. We can be saved. And it isn't something that we have to work for. In fact, we clearly see that it's something that we are not able to work for. We can't work for it. And that leads us to the question then, if I can't work for it, how do I get this salvation? If I can't work for it, but it's there, how do I get it? Leads us to point four, response. How can I get this salvation? The question is answered at the end of chapter three and into chapter four. We see that this salvation is provided by faith in Jesus Christ and that it is for all who believe. Individually, we are included in this great salvation by believing in Jesus Christ. We place our trust in him and in no other to save us. We see this in chapter four and verse five. And to the one who does not work but believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We obtain this salvation by responding with faith to the truth of this gospel. Okay, so we've seen really quickly, you know, four big picture bullet points of the gospel. And I said before that this is the foundation for gospel-shaped ministry. I wanna just apply these first four chapters really quickly, and then we'll get over to chapter 15. So why, what's, what are you know, a few reasons that the gospel matters to community? The first one, it's very simple. If you haven't placed your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you can't be a member of the community of Christ. You can't be a member of the community of grace. Apart from Christ, apart from God's grace, you can't belong, okay? The gospel is the starting point of a culture of grace. And if you've not responded in faith to that gospel, you're an outsider, and you cannot truly be a member of this culture. Sure, you can come around and, and hang out for a while. You can come to a few events. You can even appreciate some of the teaching. But you can't truly have the fellowship that is found amongst those who have had their sins forgiven by the gracious gift of God. Now, if there's someone here tonight who's, you know, who's been coming for a while, you're, you're curious about this thing called church, you're enjoying some of the friendships that you've found here, 
but you haven't yet responded to grace, let me talk to you for a minute. I'm glad you're here. I hope you come back. But I hope that you understand that this coming to church doesn't save you. It does nothing for you outside of exposing you to the truth of the gospel. Don't think that this coming to church is going to save you. Please respond to the gift of grace. God has done everything that needs to be done for your salvation. So think about that. Please feel free to talk to me, to any of the pastors. People around you would love to talk to you or point you to somebody who would talk to you. You can't be a member of this community of grace until you are saved by the grace that is proclaimed here. Another reason that a proper understanding of the gospel is so important is found in Romans chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. So if you want to turn there, that's fine. Otherwise, I'll just read it to you. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now we see here that it is possible for someone to look good, to do the right things, to say the right things, and even, and even to have a zeal for God and to have a zeal for righteousness. A zeal for God and a zeal for righteousness without ever having responded to the message of grace. These people are trying to make their own righteousness to earn their own salvation from the wrath of God. If we, as a culture of grace, those truly saved by grace, are continually stressing that only God's grace can save us in the way we live, in the way we speak to each other, in the way that we sing to each other on Sunday mornings, the way we act together outside of church, if we're continually proclaiming the message of grace, then we can, by our words and our actions, guide these people, these zealous people, to Christ and to a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if we do this, if these people are saved and they are brought into this culture, then the church is purified, this culture of grace is purified and strengthened, and God receives glory that way. Another reason that a proper understanding and response to the gospel is so important for culture of grace is that the gospel places us all on a level playing field. We understand that we are, sorry, we understand that we are all the same before God. We are desperate sinners who were completely helpless to save themselves. It doesn't matter how you were raised. It doesn't matter what your life was like before you were saved by the gospel. It doesn't matter on which side of the tracks you grew up on. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. It doesn't matter if you were or are homeschooled or public schooled. It doesn't matter if you have a Bible degree or if you can't even read. Human differences don't matter. All members of this culture of grace are saved by grace alone through no merit of their own. This allows us to see that we are all loved by God the same and that we are to love every member of this community the same. This prevents us from having cliques, from only hanging out with and serving those who are like us. This encourages us to reach out to one another as God in his grace reached out to us. This also allows us to understand that all of us have something to learn from everyone else. We all have something to learn from everybody else. This means that a seasoned Sunday school teacher can learn from somebody new to the faith. This means that a missionary can learn from a child. This means that a pastor can learn from each and every member. Okay? We see that we are all debtors to the grace of God and that anything that we have to offer to anyone else is not our own. 
It only comes from God. This leads to another point. It's kind of related to the last one. I bet some of you have seen this, or if you're like me, you've been guilty of it. You see someone serving in the church, and it seems like they're serving the gospel humbly and honestly. But then when you get closer, maybe you start to serve with them in some way, you see that they're really kind of proud and selfish. They're insisting on doing things their own way, acting like they know what is best, and then when somebody might make a suggestion or have another way of doing something, they get really annoyed with that person. This person, or myself, was not serving according to the grace given me, but was serving according to my own sense of self-worth, of which I don't have, and self-righteousness, which is as filthy rags before God. A proper understanding of the gospel rebukes this attitude and replaces it with the humility that led Christ to say as he, pro- as he approached the cross, not my will, but yours be done. The final reason that I'm going to look at tonight, there's a million more, but as to why a proper understanding of the gospel is so important, is that where does the power for this culture of grace come from? There's got to be a power here for this to make any difference, for it to actually happen. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 16 again. And 17 too. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Apart from understanding this truth, that the gospel is the power of God, it is up to us individually to muster up the energy to live as we ought to live. As Paul moves on in Romans, particularly chapters 12 through 16, Paul gives us many instructions as to how we should and should not live, what we ought to do, what we ought not to do. But if we move on to these passages without first understanding the foundation of the gospel, without understanding that the power of God is in the gospel, we, we quickly find out that we can't do it. We quickly find out that we're not enough. We're not even close. And as we get there, as we try to strive on our own, that leads to spiritual weakness. It leads to depression, to ineffectiveness, to legalism, to anger, frustration, you name it. Now kids, plug your ears for a minute. I find myself sometimes doing this with my kids. I'll say, you know what guys, Ephesians chapter six, verse one says, children obey your parents in the Lord. You're clearly not doing this. What's wrong with you? Don't you love Jesus? Come on now. You love Jesus, get at it. Well, you know, when I do this, I fail to realize that it is impossible for them to obey Jen and I and the Lord until they come to understand that their great sin stands in the way, but the great grace and power that is extended to them in the gospel. That's where I have to start with my kids. That's where we must start with anyone who is struggling, whether they've never heard the gospel before in their life or if they've been a Christian for 70 years. We always, always have to come back to the gospel. That's where the power to live the Christian life comes from. That's where the power to fight sin comes from. That's where the power in the culture of grace comes from. It comes from the gospel, and we need to be continually reminded of that. We need to be continually reminding one another of that. All right, so now that we're half, over halfway done with my time, we've covered the foundation. Let's get into Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. 
If you read that um, together with me, I'll read it. You can read along quietly. I guess if you want to read aloud, that's fine too. Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as God has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, there's no way in the next 15 minutes I'm going to do this passage justice. Um, There's lots of good teaching out there. John MacArthur, back in like 1985, did a five-part series on this, and it's excellent. So you're not going to get it all tonight. Feel free to go there or to many other places to hear a much more thorough exposition of these verses. We're just going to grab a few principles out and apply them. Now, the immediate context of this passage is Paul instructing believers who are different places in their understanding and growth in Christian liberty. So you have Jews and Gentiles coming together in a new church, all together, coming from completely different backgrounds, completely different belief sets. And so you might have a Jew just learning to, in this new covenant, you know what, it's okay for me to have, have a ham sandwich as I'm taking a long hike on the Sabbath. It's okay. I'm free to do this. They've lived so long under the law that, that they, just, they just can't do that. Or maybe you have a Gentile coming out of paganism, having sacrifices made to false gods and knowing what happens with those, you know, those animals that are sacrificed. And he might see somebody going to the market, buying that meat later, and eating it. And he's saying, that's not right. Do you understand what goes on with those sacrifices? You see in the Bible that he's free to eat that. that that's t- clearly taught by the gospel. But he doesn't understand that yet. He's not to the point where his conscience will allow him to eat that meat, just like that Jew doesn't have the freedom in his conscience, the understanding of grace yet, to eat that ham sandwich on that long hike with his family. So how do these people who are, on all, who are just all over the place in their understanding of Christian liberty work together? That's the context of this passage, okay? So Paul's instruction to the believers was to follow the example of Christ and to love each other as Christ loved and was obedient to the Father. Christ gave up his obvious rights as God and came to earth in obedience to the Father and for the Father's glory. In the same way, believers, church members, are instructed to give up their own rights, to give up pleasing themselves, but instead to please their neighbor for their own good, to build them up. If you look in your Bibles, you see this word bear. I want to take a look at that for a minute. The strong are bare with the failings of the weak. Now, just about every pastor and commentator that I read in preparation for this made a really big deal out of this word. Now, when I think of the word bear, I think I can't hardly bear it. I can't hardly bear to be around that person anymore. I can't hardly bear their attitude. But I guess I'm going to have to just uh, get along and bear it, you know? That's, that's how I use the word. That's how I usually hear it used. That's totally different than the way this word that's used in the Greek is used, at least according to the guys who know Greek, Okay. There's no joy in how I understand it. There's no love there. There's no looking out for the person's good to be found. 
The word here has the idea of taking a burden on your shoulders and carrying it. It means bearing someone else's burden. When someone is weak, when they have a wrong understanding of something that causes them to act in an immature way, we're not just to put up with them when we're around to them. We are not to talk about them behind their back and express our frustrations about them. No, we are to come alongside of them and bear that burden with them and stay there with them until they become strong. There is no quitting. We bear with each other's burdens just as Christ did when he went to the cross and died. Now just for the sake of time, we're just going to mention verse 4, although it's so important. Paul is showing the importance of our dependence and reliance on the scriptures. It is important here to remember that the only scriptures Paul had at that time was the Old Testament. And here he is validating that they are written for our instruction, for the encouragement of the church, that we might have hope. All scripture is inspired, all scriptures to be studied. And if you've been here for the last four Sunday schools, especially this morning, you've seen Mike explain very clearly how the Old Testament relates to the New, how God is continually validating his promises, keeping his promises, showing how when we are faithless, he'll remain faithful. I didn't tell him like this, but I had the guys record it. This morning, Sunday School is excellent. If you want to see more about how all of Scripture is for our good, get that recording. Now, moving on to verse 5. Sorry, Mike, by the way. <laughs> moving on to verse 5, we see what we already saw in chapter 1, verse 16. This bearing work with our weaker brother, this patience and encouragement and harmony can only come through the power of Christ. This is not something we can do on our own. If I find myself unable to bear with a fellow believer, I can be certain that it is because I'm trying to do it in my own strength, in my own power. I can only do this with the power of the gospel, with the power of Christ who now lives in me. In verse 6, we see that this is all for the glory of the Father. Jesus went to the cross for the glory of the Father. And we bear with our weaker brothers and sisters for the glory of God. This is the purpose of the church, to proclaim the glory of God as we bear with our fellow Christians. Now in verse 7, we see Paul reminding both the strong and the weak um, to welcome one another, just as they've been welcomed by Christ in their sin in their lostness, and their depravity. As we welcome each other's, as we welcome each other in grace, those expressions of grace will bring great glory to God. I'm going to make two quick applications to us as a body together, to those of us who are insiders, and one application to us as we relate to those who are outsiders, and we'll be done. The first application has to do with how relationships are used to grow each other and to glorify God. As I look through scripture, as any of us look through scripture, we can see how God uses his people in the lives of his people to prepare them for their ministry, to help them grow in their walk with the Lord. We can look at Moses working with Joshua to prepare him. We can see Joshua in return being an encouragement to Moses. We see David and Jonathan mutually encouraging each other you can look at Jesus and how he interacted with his disciples. For three years, he spent all that time with them, um, showing them the gospel, showing them grace, equipping them for the work that God had for them. We can look at Paul and Timothy and John Mark and Titus and many others 
in all the ways that he invested in their lives and encourage them on in their walk in the grace of God. We can look back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, those first verses there that are talking to fathers and mothers about how they walk with their children, how they train their children. And we look at how they're supposed to do it when, when they're walking along the path and they're lying down and just, just all through life, life together. They're together all the time. Well, then we have the New Testament the apostles referring to older men and women in the faith as spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. That's the same thing. As we live our lives together outside of these walls, we need spiritual mothers and fathers to walk with us too. Okay? And I guess for me, the, kind of the, the convicting thing is it's easy for me to hang out with people that are like me. You know, People who have a ton of kids. People who like good coffee and hate bad coffee people who enjoy reading good books and enjoy talking about them. It's really easy for me to hang out with those people. It's a little bit harder. It takes some more effort to hang out with somebody that's different than me. But I can look out here in the audience and see several people who have, just through our conversations, affected me. I think of a couple guys at Beacon, you know, just normal guys serving here at church. Just their testimony of grace as they walked through hard times. I remember... Um, Del Schmidtman, standing right up here, um, and his testimony, man, that affected me for, for my walk with the Lord. And, and man, we need those relationships. We need to get to know those people. So let's value the relationships that God has given us. Let's, in our Sunday school classes, not look to gravitate towards people that are like us in our classes, but let's look for people that we can be blessed be blessing to, people that could use our input, use what God has taught us, and also look to be blessed by people that are different from us. I need to learn a lot from those older than me, but also sometimes my, my zeal can be an encouragement to those older than me to keep on going, keep fighting for the faith, finish strong. Guys younger than me do the same thing for me. So let's not gather together with folks who are just like us. That's not a culture of grace. You'll find that at a country club. You'll find that at a, in a book club. We always want to hang out with people that are like us. A culture of grace means we hang out with people that are different than us for the glory of God. The second application. This kind of grace, and I've already touched on a little bit, this kind of grace simply cannot be shown if we only see each other at church. So many of the sermons that I listened to in preparation for tonight pointed to the fact that this culture of grace is lived out as we have people into our homes, as we gather in public places, as we live our whole lives together. Brothers and sisters, if we only see each other when we're gathered under this roof, if we're only together during those times, we're living in isolation and we're simply not living out the life that God has called us to in Christ. I hope this doesn't rub you the wrong way, but if it does, read Acts. Read the rest of the scriptures and see how they lived together as a community of God. And if we do live in that isolation, we're not going to grow in our faith as we ought to. And the others that need us so that they can grow in their faith as they ought to, they're not growing as they ought to either. And God is not glorified by our lives as he, is not, as he ought to be glorified. Think about it, bearing with, one each, bearing with one another in love, it's pretty easy for an hour or two. We can put up with a lot for an hour or two. You know there's an end in sight. But when you know that your expectation is to bear with one another as Christians for your whole life, that's why you need the power of the gospel. 
That's why Paul preaches that way. I can put up with just about anything for two hours, but not for my whole life. That takes grace. That's what Paul's calling us to, to live our lives together for his glory. And finally, an application as we seek to reach the lost. So many times churches look around and see that they are not having the effect on their communities that they're supposed to be having, and they wonder why. They wonder why the unsaved rarely come in, and when they do come in, why they don't stay for very long. They look around to see what draw people together in other gatherings, such as sporting events or theater or a community event. I just went online and typed in how to get more members in my church or how to grow my church. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of articles giving you all kinds of sometimes partially good to downright terrible advice how to grow your church. But we're looking to the outside world, to the flair, to the pizzazz, to the, the lights and the camera and the action. To see the hype, the big personalities to entertain people, to draw them in through entertainment. And as some of these churches see these things and as they read these websites and these articles on how to grow their church, they take, they take that advice and they think that they have to do the same thing. So they do it. And you know what? It works for a little while. More people come in. There seems to be an excitement in the air and people are sticking around longer. But after a while then they notice that while people are there, they aren't becoming more like Christ. Nothing's changing. Then they notice that their church starts to be more like a revolving door. People come in for a while and they disappear to be replaced by another person who stick around for a while, who hasn't changed, and then leaves again. This is what becomes a norm for the church, and then the church after a while starts to fade. If we look around at the United States, if we read about churches in the States, we can see this example over and over and over again. God didn't design his church to grow in this way. He told his disciples in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. I'm sorry, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This love for one another, this culture of grace, is what will bring people in and is what will attract people to Christ. But in order for people to see the love, there has to be first the culture of grace. And that culture of grace must be lived out where the world can see it. Now, there's a saying that I've been chewing on for a couple of years now. Actually, Jared Wilson, the guy who wrote this curriculum, took a little saying from Mark Dever, worked on it a little bit, and he says it. So if you just take it, chew on it for a while, maybe write it down in your bulletin. Think about it for a while. I'd like to talk to you about it later. But it is what you win people with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. Think about that. In closing, brothers and sisters, will we bear with one another in love? Will we seek out those who are different from us for the glory of God? Will we give up our comfort for the betterment of others? Will we give up our time and our recreation and our hobbies to gain what is better, far better, a grace-filled community that glorifies God? Will we purposefully live our lives together outside these walls so that Christ can be seen and God will be glorified? I pray that we will. And I pray that we will remember that we cannot do this on our own. No, we 
only can. There's only one way that we can do this. It's through the power of God. Brothers and sisters, we can look back through history and see that when people rely on the power of God, amazing things happen. God provides the power through his glorious gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for laying the foundation of your gospel for us over and over again, Father, that we might have hope, that we might understand where the power for living comes from, Father. We see that we are supposed to honor you, we are supposed to glorify you. There's lots of things that we ought to do, and lots of things that we ought not to do. But Father, these things can only be accomplished. Obedience can only happen as we rely on your strength. So Father, in your strength, bring us together here in St. John's as a gospel-centered culture of grace that lives out our lives together for your honor and glory, displaying you to the world for your great honor and your great glory. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.